This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, November 13th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. Those on the right who endorse a heavy-handed government approach to trade and regulation are learning some hard lessons about how policy gets done, how it doesn't get done, and what the machinery of government does to good and bad ideas alike. Cato's Scott Linscomb discusses how the new right is learning this very old lesson. The new right is a, I suppose it's a big tent. It would like to be a big tent for people who have concerns about the general direction of the United States of America and what policies would contribute most to a more prosperous, happier, secure, and safe America. So Oren Cass is is among these folks, and he has a sort of a strong view about, well, to put it quite frankly, people who think like you do, Scott Linsicum, <laughs> about trade and economics and what we ought to value when we talk about uh, trade and uh, economics more broadly. So if you don't mind, give me the best presentation of what you believe his critique to be. Well, I think it's twofold. One is on the economics itself. The critique is simply that Traditional measures of inflation, traditional economic theory, and empirical reality regarding tariffs and the trade deficit, the mainstream views of the net economic harms of industrial policy and the rest, that these are wrong, that these are wrong for various reasons, that they fail to account for certain methodological issues, that they fail to account for the fact that they've been wrong in the past and and so forth, right? Now, that misses a lot, and economists have been trying to correct the record on things like the inflation metrics and real wages and the trade deficit and the rest. But the other area that I think for our purposes today is more important, the second argument, is that free market fundamentalists like me or like members of kind of the old Republican Party or the old conservative movement, or what, what is pejoratively called the old right, are really detached from political reality and the reality of the daily lives of the American people. And that is that we free market fundamentalists are obsessed with free trade as religion and GDP growth above all else. And we have little regard for the very real harms that these policies can impose on certain Americans, um, lost jobs, closed down factories, that kind of stuff. But more importantly still is that we simply ignore the political reality of today's America and in terms of that those types of policies, those free market policies, whether it is low taxes and predictable regulatory environment or free trade and a, uh, a skepticism towards industrial policy, that those are simply politically defunct ideas. They don't reflect where the country is and that uh, really they're, you know, everybody is craving this more interventionist approach, more spending, more antitrust regulation and, and the rest. In providing that kind of critique, it doesn't seem that he and others are particularly concerned with putting together the sales pitch for 
free markets. No, for this uh, sort of broad skepticism of uh, of government intervention, it doesn't seem like that at all. Right, right. It seems to be a la- saying, "Hey, the politics are not with you." Right. Oh, oh, and by the way, you're wrong fundamentally on the facts as well. Yeah, yeah, and again, you know, we can do the the factual and economic and empirical thing forever. I just had a letter in the Wall Street Journal on some of that about because. Uh, Mr. Cass had a, a piece on how tariffs are great and can reduce the trade deficit, but let's leave that aside. Instead, it really is this political argument. And I and by the way, uh, it is you know guys like J.D. Vance in the Senate, Josh Hawley in the Senate, and a cadre of others on this new right really embrace this political reality argument that protectionism, industrial policy, antitrust, hawkishness, whatever you call it, um, this is this is where the party is. It's bigger spending no entitlement reforms, that kind of stuff. And that free market fundamentalism is just a, a politically deficient or uh, idealistic view that's just dead in the water, right? This is where the country is today. So, you know, the politics, of course, are for, for policy folks like me, uh, politics are secondary, right? I am concerned with good policy. I am concerned with improving the lives of the vast majority of the American public with less regard for winning elections, though, of course, we understand fully that you got to win elections that politicians implement these policies, right? But in the last few months, we've really seen an almost comical realization from these supposed pragmatists on the new right about how politics actually works. And, And quite frankly, they're, they seem to be waking up to, I think, one of the biggest criticisms of economic interventionist policy from us fundamentalists, which has nothing to do with the economics. It has purely to do with the politics and the politics surrounding the actual process for making policy in the United States, that it's not made by magical unicorns or even unbiased technocrats. It's made by political actors. But then, of course, the, the second reality is that it's, it's then implemented, not just made, but implemented by, again, politicians. Even in systems that are supposedly insulated from the political process, they are inevitably the bureaucrats and those people involved are inevitably influenced by K Street and Congress, right? So they are waking up to that reality. It's actually been funny to watch... Um, Holly and Vance express extreme surprise and dismay at the Biden administration's implementation of the industrial policies those senators have themselves championed. All of a sudden, Biden is injecting woke stuff into semiconductor subsidy conditions or uh, favoring labor unions or whatever that that uh, Senator Vance called counterproductive. So, uh, of course, this is a core tenet of the fundamentalist argument against industrial policy. It's very pragmatic and realistic in that, hey, this is a political process and and this is what happens. So in discovering J.D. Vance and Josh Hawley and others and Orrin Cass, in discovering that the process to getting the policies they want in such a way that they won't be gamed so that they won't be used to punish this or that industry and make Americans poorer in ways that they can't uh, readily detect without uh, spending a lot of time poring over economic data. It seems as if they are insisting that people like them 
yeah. be the people to make these decisions now and forevermore. Right. And this gets to the first big fallacy, I think, in the new rights embrace of industrial policy and antitrust regulation and tariffs and the rest is this permanent majority fallacy. And this is the idea that these policies only work in the sense of, you know, the, in the ways that Hawley and Vance and others want if they are always in charge or if the technocrats are always, their team of technocrats is always in charge. But of course, this is, as we all know, nonsense. You know, people, regardless, we've been claiming, oh, there's a permanent majority out there, you know, Democrats did that, and then Republicans think they had it. And the reality is that almost every four, six, eight years, whatever, another party gets into power. And so what happens in reality? And again, we've seen this, and not just with industrial policy and the CHIPS Act, but you can look at things like cafe regulations or the tariffs that President Trump implemented. Uh, you, can, you can really do a laundry list of, of areas where these kind of open-ended economic interventions – in fact, there was just another example of antitrust uh, regulators now turning on big oil, which I'm sure you know the new right is not too thrilled about. The reality is that these laws, once they're in place, will inevitably end up being implemented at some point down the line by political adversaries, by the other party, right? And these parties, as we all know, have very stark differences in their priorities, whether it is the types of industries they like, uh, big oil versus green energy, the types of areas of the country they like, you know, someone uh, in the industrial heartland, others are going to push in blue states, you know how that goes, right? But they also have different conceptions of the role of government. Is government there to expand opportunity for disadvantaged groups? Is it there to boost unionization and, you know, that kind of stuff, right? So you put it all together in these stark differences, and it's inevitable that these policies are going to be implemented in wildly different ways from administration to administration. And uh, that is totally ignored when you hear this, oh, we got to embrace industrial policy, right? This coming from the new right. We're going to boost our industrial capacity in steel or defense or whatever. And then the next thing you know, it's being implemented to boost uh, solar panel factories that have childcare mandates attached to them, or you know some of the you know I said woke stuff like diversity and inclusion offices have to be part of these subsidized companies. You know, just everything that that the new right hates, the Biden administration is is implementing via the industrial policies that the new right likes, and so it's that political reality that again is totally ignored, and it's based on the assumption that. They're going to be in charge. The new right's going to be in charge forever and ever and always. And of course, that's not it. And, and you know, again, those of us on the antiquated uh, old right on the libertarian side, the free market fundamentalists who are out of touch, I mean, look, that's been always a core criticism of big government or a reason for skepticism of economic intervention. Say, hey, look, maybe you have a decent idea. Maybe in the short term, you can pull this lever and achieve this objective. But someday, you're not going to be in charge. And what is this law, as written, going to be when the other guys are in charge? Um, you know, these Trump steel tariffs were implemented via a law 
that supposedly for national security, but the law is about a page long, right? And that creates massive open-ended ambiguities, loopholes, and the rest that now the Biden administration is using the exact same law and the exact same tariffs to maybe implement a green steel deal with the European Union. So all this environmental stuff, right? Now, is this in line with the letter of the law? No, it's not. And is this something that you think the Trump administration would push? No, definitely not. They wanted, you know, big coal-fired steel plants in the in Indiana and Illinois, right? But the law allows for that. And that's just, and there are laws all over the place that that allow for that. And so we fundamentalists are are skeptical of interventions, not just for the economics, not just for the principles, but because of these that political reality. I've used this line many times. I suspect you probably have at some point too. Imagine your worst enemy wielding this power. Correct. And this is a classic argument that it seems maybe the folks on the new right are finally waking up to. But I say seems because Despite some of the surprise and the revelations that Holly Vance and others are are having right now, there still is a embrace of these policies and often for what runs into the second fallacy, the argument that, well, look, everything is implemented via the political process. So really, free market policies, policies that reduce the size and scope of government, policies that lower taxes or limit regulations or eliminate tariffs or don't engage in industrial policy, but instead engage in kind of horizontal or non-discriminatory policy. Well, look, all of those free market fundamentalist policies, those require the political process too. So they're just as susceptible to gaming and politics as my bigger government, more interventionist policies. Now, this, like I said, it run, is, is fallacious. This is wrong for a, a bunch of reasons. But the most basic is that, yes, both free market policies and interventionist policies require a political process to, to be implemented, to be passed. But only one maintains or expands the government's role in the economy after passage, right? We have to think about what happens next, right? So when you have tariffs implemented, well, then you end up with an exclusion process from those tariffs. People are going to lobby for exclusions because, oh, it did, you know, there's, I'm special. I need this attention. Or downstream firms are going to say, ah, the government is protecting that industry for national security. Well, I need protection for national security too. So you have this potential to snowball. You have the government will end up trying to correct market distortions that the original policy passed by passing more policies, and on and on and on. And what you see is that by maintaining government's role in the economy, uh, you end up having far, far more capacity for political malfeasance than you have in a free market policy, where you basically go, okay, tax rate is X, tariff rate is zero, and we're done. And you're out. Now, certainly you're going to have people trying to get protection, whatever. But what we see in the data is that they're not nearly the same amount of, of potential for, for again, that kind of political gamesmanship and all those problems. Lobbying, going back to the tariff example, because it's so good, lobbying after the Trump tariffs were implemented skyrocketed. Now, why did lobbying skyrocket? Well, just like I said, Everybody was looking for exceptions or they wanted their own tariffs. 
And so you saw just absolute gravy train days on K Street, all these funny but also depressing headlines about how lobbying revenues on trade-related issues had absolutely gone through the roof. And quite frankly, you know, in my prior life as a practicing trade lawyer back in the last decade, the only time I actually had advised a client as primary advice, only time I ever said you need to get a a lobbyist, not we can help you with this case, we can do this. The only time I said, no, you got to hire lobbyists was after the Trump tariffs were implemented because the process was no longer about policy or markets or whatever. It was about knowing a guy who knew a guy in the commerce department who could get your request read and and potentially implemented. And and then later we found that the government accountability office did this review of of the tariff process and said, oh my gosh, this thing is just rife with, you know, they they're always nice. The perception of political corruption. Um and so and that just simply those types of issues just simply don't happen as much in a a freer market world where you're simply removing government from transactions, removing it from industries and markets. Now, certainly it's not perfect. You know, you look at US trade agreements, for example, well, trade agreements are political and they're going to have stuff in there that's that's bad. But that stuff is is actually where you're keeping government in the mix of intellectual property rights or whatever. Overall, though, the goal is to look at the balance and you see that it is going to be less political than the either the status quo or a, a more interventionist alternative. Scott Lincecum is Vice President for General Economics at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please. And thank you for listening.